Today we're continuing a series that we started last week called Light of the World. And I love that, that just the imagery of Christmas time and light and brightness and beauty. And Light of the World was a, a description, it was a kind of a name given to Jesus, but it was also given to his people that we were called to be the light in the world. And today that's what I want to press into a little bit is unpack this idea of light in the world. Last week we talked about darkness and dealing with the little Herod within and how oftentimes we are our own worst enemies to seeing light in our own lives. And if you were unable to kind of be here for that, you can catch up on that in the app. But today I want to press into this idea of what does it look like to be the light of the world? What does it look like to be that light in our own personal worlds? December 28, 1978, um, United Airlines Flight 173 took off from Denver International Airport. Had a two-hour and 29 flight to, uh, to Portland International Airport. And in the process of taking off and flying, it was a pretty seamless flight. The pilot and his co-pilot that day had started on the East Coast and were finishing up their day landing in Portland. About 25 minutes as they were approaching Portland International Airport, they started kind of going through their descent procedures and fired the landing gear. And the moment that the co-pilot fired the landing gear, they heard a loud explosion and the plane violently shook. And the pilot, co-pilot, starting to check all the dashboard, trying to make sure what just happened, noticed that the indicator light for the landing gear wasn't lit up, which meant that the landing gear, at least from the vantage point of the cockpit, didn't engage and lock in. This idea of being down and locked, as pilots call it, was a question mark, which meant that coming in for approach, going over 100 miles per hour as they're touching down on the runway could be a significant problem if you're lacking the front wheel of your airplane. So the pilot radioed the aircraft, air traffic controller and said, hey, we've got an issue. Uh, we're going to be asked to be placed into a holding pattern. Right now, we're unsure if our landing gear is down in engaged and locked position. And so the traffic controller said, you're fine, you're free. They had plenty of fuel, and they began to circle in a holding pattern while the pilot, co-pilot, and stewardesses began to prepare the plane for emergency landing. You see, there's an emergency landing procedure if your landing gear doesn't come out that requires certain kind of emergency response vehicles to be there, certain positions that the passengers assume. So the stewardess were coaching the, the people on the plane how to respond, what it's going to feel like, what it's gonna, what's going to happen, how do you need to be holding yourself and your loved ones as we make impact. And in the course of doing that, they they were re finally ready, they were finally engaged, and so they radioed the tower and said, hey, we're ready to make our emergency landing. Tower radios back and says, well, um, we need a few more minutes. There's a plane currently uh, landing on the strip, and can you go circle one more time? They said, yep, sure. Pilot sends the co-pilot through the aisles to make sure everyone's ready and engaged. It's about the sixth time that the co-pilot has walked through the aisle, reassuring everyone that things are going to be okay. Uh, the pilot goes in for the final landing swoop again, and sure enough, tower runs back and says, wait, there's still another plane coming in. We need to clear them before you can make your emergency landing. Pilot says, no problem. Holding pattern sends his co-pilot back for the seventh time to walk the aisle to make sure everyone is okay. As they approach for the final landing and start to make their bearing towards the um, airport, the co-pilot looks at the pilot and says, sir, we're dangerously low on fuel. A few minutes later, engines one and two flame out. As a four-engine plane, which meant they're okay, they can still make it to the runway, but about a minute later, engines three and four flame out. And within just moments of that, they're careening silently through the air, 
and they impact the ground about six miles from the airport. And of the 189 people who are on, on board, 10 of them lose their life, and 23 are instantly um, they're injured and having to be rushed to, the, um, to emergency response. And in the aftermath of the procedure, what they realized was that they had made a fundamental error. You see, in, in dealing with this, this small problem, because while it may sound significant to you and I that one of the landing gears was not engaged, it's actually not that big of a deal. Planes can land and planes can fly with a landing gear that's loose or unengaged. There are procedures in place. If you're a pilot, you've been trained for that numerous times to how to land a plane when your landing gear is not engaged. But in that small problem, they had neglected an even significant problem. They had neglected the fuel gauge. You see, a plane can fly and a plane can land without a landing gear, but it can't without fuel. And this really profound kind of report that comes out actually radically shifts the airline industry. Flight 173 is responsible for wide-sweeping policy shifts that transformed the airline industry. And it's the reason it's safer today than it was when they were flying, largely out of what came out of this flight. But the point that was made in realizing that this small problem had caused them to miss a more significant problem, I think has impact for our own lives, right? That sometimes we can get caught up in some small things that sidetrack us from the significant, from the really important, those things that can prevent us from living the lives that God intends us to live. And it's not just us as individuals. Groups can do it. And it's not just a today problem. It's a human problem. That John, the, one of the one of Jesus' youngest followers who writes multiple books that we find in the New Testament calls out this very same tendency in the early church. And it's his words and his letter that I want us to jump into today so that in this Christmas season that you and I don't make the same mistake the, the people, the, the leaders, the pilot made on Flight 173 and that John warned the early church in the letter of First John. And if you have the Encounter Church app that Jason referenced earlier, you can click on it and it'll have the, the passage that we're going to be reading from today. And if not, it'll actually be on the screen behind me. But let me kind of set the backdrop because uh, if you're new to the church experience or you're just kind of returning to an idea of faith, uh, the New Testament can be a little intimidating. I think quite honestly, maybe people don't tell you this, but the Bible itself is intimidating. Right? There's no other book outside of a cookbook in your life, that you tend to just pick and open up and, and try to like digest whatever you happen to land on page-wise. I mean, the Bible's not a book you tend to open up and read from the beginning and all the way through the end. That's a little overwhelming. And oftentimes when I'm having conversations with people about the Bible, that's their main question. I don't know how to deal with this thing. It's huge. It's massive. And, and I said, yeah, that's, that's normal. Do you read books from 2,000 years ago? No. I I don't typically read books from 2,000 years ago either. That's what the Bible is. So it's this kind of culturally set-apart thing. When I go to plays with my wife, she um, graduated with honors in English, and she specifically kind of focused in on Shakespearean literature. I don't understand Shakespeare. She's like laughing at the jokes that they're saying, and I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. I mean, I'm like Googling like plain English version of whatever the play is that I'm seeing in front of me. And I'm like, 
that's what he's talking about? That doesn't sound right. I mean, it's like I don't get Shakespeare. And for many of us, I think we can forget that the Bible is very much similar to Shakespeare in that it's coming from a different time period, from a different time zone. It's coming out of a different culture, completely separate from us. And that's why on on the surface, it can be quite challenging just to step into it and start reading it. And John is one of these guys who's who's, um, responsible for writing um, a significant portion of it. Paul, the apostle, writes a bulk of the New Testament, these letters that get put together that we now know as the New Testament. But John is a guy who writes another large group of them. John, who writes the letter of John or the gospel of John, he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. They didn't get really creative on that one. And then he writes the letter known as Revelation, which is a whole different kind of read within itself. That's a read that if you just want to really kind of scare yourself and not understand what you're reading, just flip in the middle of that thing and start reading, and then you'll put it down pretty quick. I mean, so here's this book. Here's this man who writes with a unique perspective. You see, John was the youngest person who started following Jesus. Jesus starts this Christian movement born out of Christmas, what we're celebrating, his birth. He gathers around him 12 guys that become known as the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. And John is the youngest of all of them. He's kind of the little kid brother of the group. In fact, he and Jesus have a special relationship because Jesus is over double his age. Jesus is literally old enough to be his father in this first century context. And John becomes kind of this little brother's son to Jesus. In fact, his nickname becomes the disciple that Jesus loved because it was that kind of relationship. And John was given access to experiences. He saw things. He heard things that some of the other disciples didn't. And because John was the youngest, John outlived and was fortunate enough to to survive longer than all the other disciples. You see, all 12 people outside of Judas who followed Jesus, all of them would ultimately end up being killed for their faith. John would live into very old age. All the other disciples would live in the first generation of Christianity. John is the only one in the original group that makes it to the second generation, which is important. John actually sees people become Christians And then they grow older, have children, and their children grow up hearing about Christianity. And now they're adults. And so John is literally the only one from the beginning that sees the second generation of Christians. And John recognizes that they're in this, they have the same potential to make the same mistake that Flight United 173 made, that they could get sidetracked from the most significant thing. And so John spends a bulk of his old age writing letters to the church predominantly those people who were born in the church, reminding them of what the Christian faith was really about. Which is important because I'm going to jump into it and it's going to feel really, really rudimentary, but I want you to understand the context, who he's writing to and why he's writing these words and why he wants them to understand that they potentially could miss the heart of Christianity if they're not careful. So 1 John chapter 3, this is the letter that we called 1 John Chapter 3, he says this in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action, actions, and in truth. I love it. It's just three simple verses, but it's powerful. Right, because John is wanting to remind this, 
this generation who's grown up in the church that it's easy to miss what the church is really about. It's really easy to miss in the midst of traditions and religious celebrations. It's easy to miss the driving force behind all those religious traditions and celebrations. And he starts with love. He says, right, this is how we know what love is. He's, the whole defining, defining word of Christianity was love. This was the defining word, God's love for us. And he said, I want to remind you of what the definition is. So he kind of starts off in this little section. just says, love defined is how he loved. And maybe if you've grown up in church, that's not a radical statement. But you have to realize this is first century Roman civilization. Love was at best a religious ritual that perhaps you did at the temple of Aphrodite, that you made some sacrificial kind of, kind of petitions to Aphrodite for, for maybe for your relationship or whatever happened, but love was primarily oriented around people that you loved. The idea of loving others wasn't the definition. It was love was primarily how did you love yourself. Your standard for love was how much love you had for you not for anyone else or not for what anyone else had for you. And you didn't love others who were not like you. You only loved people who had the same last name, who looked like you, who acted like you. You didn't love people who looked different from you. This idea of love that transcended is, is, is really foreign in ancient Rome. This is a Christian distinctive. This is a, Christ, a Christian invention this idea of love that we can take for granted. And he says that this is how we know what love is. The metric and the standard was how Jesus loved. That that's the standard. He's like, I don't want you to miss that in this new generation of people growing up. And so he goes from being this kind of love defined to love described, right? He says, and we ought to lay down our lives for brothers and sisters. And in verse 17, he says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but no pity on them, how can the love of God, love of God be in that person? Now he's describing what love looks like out of this implication. And this is, again, it doesn't sound profound to us because we live in a day and age where this idea of philanthropy is common, but philanthropy, this idea of just groups of people or governmental structures taking care of the poor, taking care of the needy, taking care of those who are not like them, is a modern invention. What we take for granted when we watch television and see Hyundai say, if you come and drive, or Mazda say, if you come and drive a car, we'll give something away to someone, that didn't exist prior to the to 1800s. Like, that's literally birthed in the 1800s. That the church is this leading force. And Roman thinkers, Roman historians, Roman orators in the day actually minimized. And if you saw someone who was, who was poor on the street begging, it was their lot. And it was not okay for you to interrupt that. That was their punishment. You shouldn't, you shouldn't give to them because their punishment is the fact that they can't eat enough. And you were meant to ignore those people. You were meant to minimize those people. You were meant to treat people differently because of their skin color or where they came from. That, that was the way the Romans lived. And John says, that's not who we are. Our standard is him and how he loved and how he demonstrated love. 
They, he says love is focused on the other. It's not a selfish thing. It's focused on the other outside of you. That's what's the driving force. That What Jesus did was this demonstration that is meant to be the declaration of our lives. How we live. That we believe everyone matters to God even if God doesn't matter to them. That we don't treat people based on how they treat us. That we treat them how He would treat them. And how did He treat them? You go back to the, the account where he says Jesus is our standard and you look that Jesus is sacrificial. He's selfless. He steps into our brokenness. He's not selective. Jesus hugs and loves people that most of the religious leaders had intentionally avoided their entire lives. He's like Jesus treated people equally because that's who God was. Everybody mattered to God even if God didn't matter to them. Because his standard of love was him. And John's trying to reset them because he knows the second generation has missed this personal experience with Jesus. He's like, I want you to lose, the, lose this driving force for who we are. And so he tells them, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but in action and in truth. Loving in word and speech is pretty easy. If I'm honest, that's the one I'm really good at. I can be like, I love you. Gotcha. It's really easy to text or say it. It's really hard to demonstrate it. It's really hard to actually live it out. It's really easy to say, I love my daughter. It's really hard when my daughter is keeping me up in the middle of the night. Right? It's really easy to love people who make you feel good about yourself. It's hard to love people who make you angry. It's really easy to love people who have the same views about the world you do. It's really hard to love people who you think are idiots because they don't agree with you. It's really easy to love the way the Romans loved. It's almost impossible to love the way Jesus loved. And yet that was to be the mark of this church, this early thing called Christianity. And I love it. He commands them. He says, dear children, because he's old. He can say that. He's, he's the grandfather. He's the Yoda of the church. I mean, he is extraordinarily old in this kind of realm of generation. And he says to them, dear children. He commands them because you can't command an emotion, but you can command a choice. And he's making a point. Love is not an emotion. We live in a world that makes love an emotion. And love is not simply an emotion. There is an emotional component, but love in its purest, in its highest, in its most noble form is a choice and commitment. Jesus doesn't say, I love them. I feel like going to the cross. I feel like dying for them. And he feels the exact opposite. But there's a commitment and there's a choice. And this is this highest form. That's what John says. Look, I'm commanding you because I'm not telling you to, to base your love on this reactionary thing called emotions. I'm telling you to love because it's a choice. It's a commitment. It's where you leverage who you are for their good. That's what love is. And that's what he calls them to. 
And here's the thing. We live in a day and age where love gets thrown around, but it is exactly like the way the Romans did it. It is word, and it is speech, and it is weak. And the early church, I love history. I, I, I'm a nerd, okay, self-confessed. I read weird things. I read weird things about weird things. I, I'm that guy who likes to read the books that the people wrote the books up read. I'm like, oh, I want to read that first source, right? That, that gets me excited. And so, like, er, early Christian history is one of those things that I was fortunate to get in my grad level and even in some of my doctorate level courses where I got to dig into Christian history, especially the early Christian history. And I love it because this idea isn't sentimental. This was literally how they did life. They didn't believe Christmas was a holiday. They believed Christmas was a how-to. This idea that God would step in and love was how they approached life. There's early stories and account. One is, is Pacamus, who was a 20-year-old. He was um, 20 years old at the time. He was in a town called Thieves. And in the midst of being in this city, the Roman army comes in and conquers him. And as a 20-year-old, He's now um, conscripted into the Roman army. That's what the Roman army did. They would go in, and whenever they conquered a people, a region, or a village, they would make all the males instantly Roman soldiers. Uh, but, as you can imagine, that's a little difficult. So the Romans realized that a good transitional way of doing it was throw all the young males into prison. Okay, Lock them up until there's a war that breaks out, and then ship them to the war, and they'll fight for their lives, and they'll fight for their lives under the Roman kind of banner. And at the end of the war, they'll probably be Roman citizens. They'll be a little bit more on board with us. And this is kind of, it kind of worked for the Romans. Well, it happened to work out that Pacamus happens to be in prison while a famine hits. And in the middle of that famine, prisoners are no longer being fed. I mean, there's no food, kind of breaks out. But what, what he notices, he and the other prisoners wake up every morning and there's food on the ground. You see, every single night, a group of strangers were sneaking in and, and sliding food between the bars so that when the soldiers woke up the next morning, there would be food available. And all the other soldiers, and he as well, would gorge themselves every single morning because it was the only food they were getting. And then he did something that the older, other, other prisoners didn't do. He started asking questions. He was curious, where is this food coming from? Who in the world is bringing food in the middle of the night? This is dangerous. Why would someone do something like this? And he starts asking around, and some of the other prisoners and the guards start to say, well, there's a group of people known as the, the followers of the Galilean or the followers of the way. We call those people today Christians. This is the same group. Um, and the word Christian is this early kind of, it was actually a slanderous term, uh, Christian, when it was first given, it started off as um, a little, it was a way of cutting someone down. It's like, you're a Jesus wannabe. Uh, Christian, literally, in its kind of original word, was like little Jesus. It's like, oh, you're just trying to act like Jesus. And it was, the, it was a put down. But the Christians embraced it because they're like, yeah, that's exactly who we want to be. We want to be like little Jesuses everywhere. And so they adopted this phrase known as Christian. That's why we call people Christians today is because of how it was used and the way that it was received. And the Christians say, no, that's exactly what we want to be accused of, is being a lot like Jesus. And so he finds out that it's actually this group of people known as Christians. So when he gets out of prison, he, he finds them, and he starts to learn about who Jesus is. And over the course of that time, his life is transformed. And he goes on to live a life in his second half where he makes significant impact on people's lives around them. 
So much that he's eventually venerated as a saint. He's celebrated and he's recognized in church history as this significant doer of good and love. All because of his experience with the church. Emperor Julian, who comes a little later after, who um, is kind of raises up persecution against Christians again. Um, Christianity is an illegal religion in the, early, in the Roman Empire. Um, Julian starts to copy significant time with Jesus. When I read his words of what he described Christianity, I see a faith motivated primarily by how God has loved us, and it primarily moves us to go and love others. That that is the essence of Christianity, that God so loved us that he stepped into this broken world to rescue us, and now we get to go and love and serve others. And I would say, Uh, While I recognize the struggle, while I recognize your bad taste, I would just say in no other realm do we do that, where we experience something bad and we reject the whole thing. Like, I've had food poisoning before, but you can look at me and tell that I didn't reject food after I had a bad experience with food. I'm just being real with you. And for some of you, maybe you had a bad experience with Christianity, and it's the reason you don't like church, and you're kind of just slowly stepping your toe back into this thing. And I want to acknowledge that bad experience, but I would also say that just because you had one bad experience, as significant as it may felt, it doesn't mean that you experienced Christianity the way Jesus intended it, the way that John recaptures it, and the way that we're compelled to be in it. And that's why we've created these um, groups that meet that kind of help us explore faith in a safe environment where we can ask difficult questions, where we can wrestle with this idea of Christianity. And and if you're open, you want to learn more about Christianity, a safe environment, then in the app is a a logo that says starting point. You can click on that and totally kind of be part of that group. And it's a private group, and we just process through faith and issues of faith. and, And if you want to sign up, know that that's there for you. For Christmas, I think the power of Christmas, when you kind of dig in a little bit, is that um, you realize that this idea of love does is, is a powerful force. For me, I look at Christmas, and it isn't just a holiday. It's a how-to. I did Christmas yesterday. Okay? I have a, I have a, a soon-to-be five-year-old. Uh, like next week, she turns five years old. Now, that's a whole different counseling session on the side I'm working through. Okay? Um, but she, this little beautiful little girl about to become a five-year-old, and so yesterday we had a daddy-daughter date, and she, she gets to define daddy-daughter dates. I don't call the shots. She calls the shots. I still parent, but, you know, she's kind of setting the agenda, and so we go and see the movie Trolls, and if you haven't seen the preview, let me save you. It's a bunch of happy little trolls with colorful little hair. Justin Timberlake's one of them, and they're just singing, and they're dancing. A vast majority of the movie is singing and dancing with happy trolls and, and really decent music. Like I'm, I'm, I get caught up in it. You know, Justin Timberlake's got like a baby angel stuck inside of his throat, and he, so when he sings, it sounds good. And so I'm like watching this, and then we leave the movie theater, and, and my little girl, and she's like, I want to go to McDonald's. I'm like, I don't like McDonald's. She's like, I want to go to McDonald's. You don't like McDonald's. They have trolls in their Happy Meal. I'm like, okay. So we go to McDonald's, and she's sitting there at the table. She's like, Daddy. It's like, what, sweetie? What was your favorite start of the movie? What was your favorite song in the movie? How was your favorite ending of the movie? What was your favorite part of the movie? Daddy, tell me. What was the song that you loved to sing? 
Daddy, can we act out the movie when we get home? Can we dance the movie when we get home? Can we sing the movie when we get home? And I'm driving out of the movie theater, and I've got trolls on my like car radio because Apple Music conveniently made it available. And so we're driving down the road, and I'm like, and she's like back there dancing and singing, and Justin Timberlake's like, you with the sad eyes, don't be discouraged, you know, and it's like this tender moment, and you're like, you know, she's like all happy, and here's the deal, I'm a 35, I'm like 35 years old, grown man, when I pick my plans, that's not what I pick, I'm an introvert, I don't sit around talking about my favorite songs and movies or my favorite starts or favorite endings. I don't typically dance out or act out movies I've seen, right, at least in public with other people to see it. And yet I was doing all of that. The reason why is because of Christmas, because God becomes like us to show us his love for us. God looks at us as the starting point to how to have a conversation around love. How to have the conversation and demonstration of what love looks like. And for me as a parent, it means I start with her, not my preferences. I start with her world, not my world, when I'm trying to win her heart, when I'm trying to build a relationship. And that's what's so powerful about Christmas is that God stepped into our world. He didn't ask us to step into his. He used our words, our expressions to demonstrate it. And whether that means as a roommate, you start with your roommate's perspective and your roommate struggles to have conversations, or if you're married, you go in with your spouse's perspective but that your starting point is their world, not your world. Because that's what Christmas is. It's a how-to, not just a holiday. Or for your, if you maybe in your workspace, you don't want people to know that you get your best ideas from Christianity, go in and call it empathy. That's a big thing right now. Okay? You can, it's like seven books from Harvard Business Press has come out this year on empathy. And they'll think you're a genius. And you just don't tell them that you got this idea from Christmas. You just tell them you read it in a book somewhere, and they'll be like, oh, that's big this year, this idea of empathy. But when you step into one of your coworkers' environments, you start with their starting point in life, how they see things, how they experience things, all of a sudden you start to experience common ground, and you can make progress together. That there's power in what Jesus demonstrated. It's why people serve here at this church even if they don't believe. Did you know that there are people who you interact with every week who, who aren't even sure if they believe this thing yet? They're still working through their faith. They're still processing heavy questions. It's because as a church, you can belong and be part of this group even if you don't believe what the group believes. Because we believe everybody matters to God, period. And we have a space and a place and a role for you. If you have a passion, we have a place where you can step into it even if you're not sure, if you've figured out the belief part yet. It's because this is a church that believes that the church exists to be for people, not trying to figure out what it can get from people. That we really take this seriously, not just individually, but even corporately. That's why today, um, just because of your generosity, we're going to be giving $2,000 to the Star House, which is this powerful, 
powerful nonprofit in our community that takes kids. They're, they're a transitional home. And what means is there's about six kids living there right now, and they were snatched out of an abusive situation or a neglectful situation. And they're going to spend approximately 30 days in Star House in transition to an orphanage or to foster care. And because they were snatched out, rescued from a bad situation, it means that they probably came into that house wearing the clothes that they had on and nothing else. And we believe that Christmas is not a holiday, it's a how-to. And because of some relationships and us getting to know them, we said, hey, can we buy Christmas for the kids this year? We know they're going to be there, and this is going to be a really hard year. It's going to be a really hard. Can we just buy Christmas? Because here's what's cool. They will take everything they get, and they will take it with them into this next season. That We may not be able to control where they go. We, we may not even be able to know where they go, but we know that their physical expression of God's love will go with them. The kids who walked in with just maybe one set of clothing can actually have clothes for the winter. Or maybe even a toy that can help to comfort them through the transition. Because we think everybody matters to God. That's why we do community events. That's why we give and we serve and we love. is because He gave, He served, and He loved. It's who He is. And by extension, it's who we're called to be. It's also why 